Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Hello, and welcome to Episode 8 of Burning Books, a podcast dedicated to discussing, celebrating, exploring, etc. Great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today we have a book that I will not readily categorize or rate, seeing as the first time I tried to do so, I think I may have gotten it wrong. Indeed, as of the time of this recording, the verdict is still not in on this novel, and that, I think, is one of its strengths. The book is by the Icelandic author Sean. It was initially published in 2004, translated into English in 2008, and the title is The Blue Fox. Maestro Hakan, the music, please. Short books naturally intrigue, well, me at least. Maybe it's because you know that English language publishers who are reluctant to publish translated books and reluctant to publish short books would therefore be doubly reluctant to publish short translated books. Following this logic, it would therefore stand that the short translated book that makes it through to publication will have to carry something with it, something that justified itself in a way that longer works don't. Whereas the truth in all this is that lousy books are never determined by length, the accompanying fact is that shorter works, if lousy, are at least over sooner. Thus, a rant ends, and a review begins. As The Blue Fox is a brief work, I'll make my outline equally so. There are four parts to the book, and a total of five-ish main characters. The most prominent characters are the displaced Dane, Friedrich B. Fridjonsson, who lives on a farm called Breca in the Dale, an archdeacon, Baldur Skugason who leads the parish in which the farm is located, and the title character, the Blue Fox, who roams the parish land and who also goes by the name The Vixen. In addition, there are two young secondary characters, Halfdan and Halfdis, both of whom, it is revealed, have Down syndrome. The year, incidentally, is 1883. So you have the rural Icelandic setting, the cast of five characters, and that brings us to the structure, whose strange shapes, directions, and misdirections comprise one of the most pleasurable aspects of the novel. The Blue Fox is broken into four parts. The first three parts take place over ten days, more or less, in January 1883. The last part takes place over a shorter period in March of the same year. In the first of the four parts, Baldur Skukason, the archdeacon, is out hunting the vixen, although the hunt is less chase than track. In the second part, which chronologically precedes the first, the young Halfdan comes to Friedrich's farm to collect the body of Halfdis, his young love, for burial. And during this, we get the story of how the girl with Down syndrome, initially cast out by the Icelanders, ends up on Friedrich's farm in the first place. Having glossed over parts one and two, though, I'm going to leave you hanging. If I give you any more about the plot, I think I may be revealing too much. Let's just say that Baldur Skugason's Hunt of the Vixen doesn't go exactly as planned for the Archdeacon, or for that matter, for the Vixen, unless she thought she'd end the whole thing by entering into a discussion about the arrival of electricity with the man who was trying to kill her. Having said that, you never know. That could have been on the Vixen's agenda all along. They are called foxes for a reason. Indeed, peppered throughout the first section of the novel are clues that the vixen is more than she appears. 
Rereading the lines. All day long, the vixen ran uphill and down dale, the man following hard on her heels. And reflecting on the idea that... She was his letter of commission, setting him a task to perform in the material world. Tells you this novel exists in a world beyond the strictly empirical, or even loosely empirical, and that this world beyond was the author's destination all along. The reader slips easily into this world beyond, in large part because most of the writing in this book is nearly transparent. The words rarely draw attention to themselves, and therefore do not distract from the things being described. There were a few lines, however, that stopped me short. One of them that still niggles is the insertion of two aphorisms from Ovid's Metamorphosis that appear when Frederick assembles the puzzle-like pieces of a wooden tablet, a narrative trick comparable to when a character turns on a radio or television in a movie and some critical piece of information just happens to be given out at that moment. The first clue from Ovid is, All things change, nothing perishes. And the second, which arrives shortly thereafter, is, The burden that is well-born becomes light. If you heard the podcast on Jeanette Winterson's Sexing the Cherry, you'll recall that I don't think highly of thematic messages being dropped onto the reader's head from 45,000 feet. A good writer, I think, is clever and sly. He or she finds a way to work the ideas into the plot without etching them into the stone arch that reigns over the novel. Credit to Sean, though, because although the introduction of these aphorisms is awkward, Their appearance does not constrict the path of the story, as it seemed to do in the case of Winterson's novel. And after all this, I would say that these neon thematic directives may not even have been necessary, because a little while later, the author found a far more interesting way of broaching the subject of metamorphosis when, about halfway into the book, he described the origins of the term Down syndrome. In the third volume of London Hospital Reports, 1866, Frederick read an article on the classification of idiots by J. Langdon H. Down, a London doctor. The article was an attempt to explain a phenomenon that had long puzzled people, the fact that white women sometimes gave birth to defective children of Asiatic stock. The doctor conjectured that the mother's illness or a shock during pregnancy might have caused the child to be born prematurely. This could happen anywhere in the well-documented developmental stages of the fetus. Fish, lizard, bird, dog, ape, negro, yellow man, Indian, white man, but seemed most common at the seventh stage. Down's mongoloid children had therefore not attained full development. They were doomed to be childish and meek all their lives. But like other members of inferior races, with kind treatment and patience, they could be taught many useful skills. In Iceland, they were destroyed at birth. Sly and clever, Sean. Here we have, at an oblique angle, a perfectly oblique angle, a beautiful and fascinating passageway into the heart of this book about the migration of souls and the transformation of bodies. We also have a more thoughtful entry to the matter of metamorphosis than in those earlier excerpts from Ovid. It's strange to say that a bit of medical history can exceed the words of the Roman poet, but in the novel, which rewards newness over familiarity, this is the case. Last thing I'll add is about translation. Saying nothing about a translator is like saying nothing about an ump or a ref, usually a good sign. And while the blue fox goes down smoothly, I did have trouble with the choice of words to describe Halfdan, the boy with Down syndrome. When, in part two of the book, he appears at Brecca Farm to collect the body of his girlfriend, Halftis, he is described as Egypt, cretin, and defective. Because these words are not uttered by the character, but spoken by the third-person narrator, I found them to carry, along with their pejorative connotations, a judgment that is in no way keeping with how the story as a whole treats these characters and their condition. 
Like the fallen from the sky aphorisms of Ovid, these words jarred me, though with greater ethical consequences than the suddenly appearing bits of Latin wisdom, which were merely distracting. On reflection, of course, these could have been the words of the author, in which case I wonder why they were chosen in the first place. Sean, if you're out there, well, I know you're out there, maybe you can give me a hand with this. Reviewers of this well-received book have remarked particularly on the character of Halfdis, the girl who is rescued from the Icelanders who kept her locked like an animal in a shed. The main characters of this book are sketched sparingly, which is in no way a problem, and of all of them, it is perhaps the girl Halfdis, perhaps the Reverend Hunter, Baldur Skugason, who lasts longest in memory. In the case of Baldur, it's because he's the most fully formed and has the strongest personality. He's a nasty piece of stinky cheese. The strength of Halfdis, on the other hand, comes from the fact that she remains a mystery in the reader's mind. Her introduction is as a corpse, and even in the exposition, when she is alive, she is barely outlined. Where Baldur is pungent, Halfdis is a wisp of smoke. A wisp of smoke on her own, but also suggestive, perhaps intentionally, perhaps inevitably, of William Faulkner's luster, the severely developmentally disabled but clear-seeing character at the heart of The Sound and the Fury. Halfdis and Lester are not synonyms, by any means, but one does echo the other. Lester is someone who, like Halfdis, rewrites the world using his own language and syntax. He's a character who, in his tangled reception and explorations of the world, tells us as much about that tangled world of the book as any other character, and perhaps more. But where Lester is more fully outlined by the author, Halfdis remains an adumbration. It's up to the reader to fill in the blanks, and that's what the reader does. It's for this reason that the character Halfdis remains in your thoughts after the story is over. I would say that she is one of the main reasons why The Blue Fox is a worthwhile read. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Next up will be a review of Mordechai Richler's St. Urbane's Horseman. In the meantime, send me your thoughts, nasty and nice, either via Twitter, at burningbookspod, and or email. The address is burningbookspod at gmail.com. Today's pronunciation of inscrutable Northern European crypto-barbarian verbiage was provided by Henrik Kutley, who, keen-eared observers will notice, is not Icelandic, but Danish. And while the two are so often at odds with each other, perhaps this is an opportunity right here on this podcast to make things a little better. In signing off, then, I want to say... Mange tak. To Henrik Kutley. To Hakan Osgan. Jamaltak nemli for the musikalske inslag. And as always, go Jays. Hi. 
Hi, this is Kari Herbert. I'm the author of Polar Wives, coming out this April, published by Greystone Books, and you can order it, pre-order it now on Amazon. You're listening to Radio Litopia, and I hope you enjoy this show. Thank you. 